This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. It was a mild spring evening on May the 6th, 1999 in Kingston, Ontario. And for the staff and residents of the city's most famous address, Kingston Penitentiary, the day had been like every other day in the federal prison, a regimented routine controlled by barriers and bars. But for one of the prison's 500-plus inmates, This was the last night he was planning to call the archaic limestone prison home. His well-rehearsed and detailed plan was in place, and he was checking out. He had been sentenced to 47 years of hard time, but he wasn't sticking around for even one more day in that hellhole. It was now or never. So, while the rest of the prisoners slept through the night locked in their cells and the disinterested guards monitored their stations, the 32-year-old inmate bolted from his hiding place inside the prison. He scaled a four-meter chain-link fence in the yard and then climbed a homemade ladder to reach the top of the 10-meter-high perimeter wall. At the top of the prison wall, he secured a grappling hook and quickly repelled down the other side to freedom. And with that, he became the first inmate to escape from the infamous Kingston Penitentiary in 41 years. His absence from the prison wouldn't be discovered until the next morning, but by that time he was long gone and vowed never to return. He'd left a note on the wall calendar in his prison cell that read, Fishing Trip, 1999. But, just 14 days later, his freedom would come to a sudden end. And the promise he made to himself to never set foot in Kingston Pen or any other prison for that matter would be realized as he sat slumped in a chair in a dingy basement apartment in Toronto, dead from a single gunshot wound to the chest. And while it would be clear who pulled the trigger, there would be many more questions about who and what was ultimately responsible 
for his tragic death. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true life story of a man whose short life was almost predetermined from the moment of his birth. A soft-spoken, intelligent kid abandoned by his family at an early age, he grew up a product of the system. Foster care, group homes, and juvenile detention centers. Caught up in an inept social safety net, unable to protect him, he learned how to survive the hard way and eventually developed a taste for stealing and running away. By 17, he was robbing banks, but he never once harmed another person in the commission of his crimes. Sentenced to a lifetime behind bars, he broke out of almost every prison that tried to contain him. And then, his daring escape from the escape-proof Kingston Penitentiary turned him into an instant celebrity. He was the good-looking fugitive on the run. His story garnered huge media attention and a sympathetic response from the public. But his final taste of freedom would be short-lived and the circumstances surrounding his death would leave a lot of questions unanswered. This is Escape from Kingston Penitentiary, The Life and Death of Tyrone Khan. Episode 1, Born to Run. Fifteen-year-old Marion Wood was a typical rebellious teenager living in a small Ontario town in the mid-1960s. Picton, Ontario was a picturesque spot located on the Bay of Quinte in Prince Edward County. A conservative town with loyalist roots, Marion often dreamed of leaving the sleepy hamlet and heading west to Toronto, Canada's epicentre for the decade's hippie culture and music scene. And it wasn't long before Marion got her wish. Marion discovered she was pregnant, and by her 16th birthday, she was married and living in a basement apartment in Toronto. Her new husband, Jack Hayes, who was from Newfoundland, was 10 years older, and he liked to party. But... The newlyweds soon settled into a domestic routine, and on January 18, 1967, Marion gave birth to a baby boy. Ernest Bruce Hayes was a healthy, happy baby. But for his first-time parents, the responsibilities of caring for him soon put a strain on their relationship. Marion was often left home alone with the baby while Jack went out and partied with his friends. And then one night, he simply never came back. Marion soon discovered he had a girlfriend and he had moved to Victoria, British Columbia. Not ready to give up on her marriage, Marion jumped on a flight to the West Coast and convinced Jack to return to her and baby Ernie. Jack 
did come back, but promptly moved in with his girlfriend and her two kids. Devastated and angry, Marion did something she would later regret for the rest of her life. She packed up baby Ernie and dropped him off with Jack. Since her husband was willing to care for another woman's children, she figured he could look after his own. A few days later, Marion was in a car headed to Alberta with some friends to make a fresh start. Sadly, Marion had overestimated Jack's paternal instinct, and within days of her leaving, Jack had dropped his son off at Marion's parents in Picton, where the little boy would live for the next three years. Marion would visit when she could, but never stayed too long. Finally, when Marion was 20, she returned from out west. The girl who had become a wife and a mother by the time she was 16 had matured into a responsible adult, and she felt ready to resume her role as Ernie's mother. But her parents disagreed, and little Ernie was already gone. Not long after his third birthday, Ernest Bruce Hayes became a ward of the Picton Children's Aid Society. His grandparents, who were still raising children of their own, had decided that Ernie needed a fresh start. They were angry at their daughter for abandoning him, and they told the social workers that she wasn't capable of caring for him. Marion strongly disagreed, and went to court to try to get her son back, but it was too late. The child welfare bureaucracy had decided that the happy little boy would be adopted, and they had already secretly decided on Ernie's new family. Dr. E. B. Kahn was a well-known psychiatrist working at the Belleville Hospital. Originally from Brighton, Ontario, which wasn't far from Belleville, Dr. Kahn had worked at other hospitals in Canada and the United States and was well-respected. Dr. Kahn and his wife, Loris, already had three children, 11-year-old Jeffrey, 9-year-old Karen, and 2-year-old Loris Jeanette. At three and a half, their new adopted son would fit right in. Ingrid Bateman was a psychologist who worked with Dr. Kahn at the time. She also did child assessments for the Children's Aid Society in Picton. When she met young Ernie, she realized that the handsome, confident little boy was extremely smart and would thrive in a loving, stable home. In fact, she had even selected a childless couple she knew to begin the home study and lengthy adoption application process. But 24 hours after her assessment, she learned that the blonde little boy had already been adopted by the cons. Years later, Ingrid Bateman questioned how the cons were able to skip the official adoption application, normally a six-month process, and take Ernie home. And so, on August 20th, 1970, under highly irregular circumstances, Ernest Bruce Hayes began his life as Tyrone 
William Kahn. Marion Wood had lost her son for good. Everyone told her it was for the best. He had a new loving family who would give him the perfect childhood she could not. There was nothing she could do. Maybe it was for the best, and she only wanted the best for Ernie. But she had no intentions of ever forgetting him. Three-and-a-half-year-old Ernest Hayes was now Tyrone Kahn, and he had a whole new family. The Kahns were a typical suburban middle-class family. Two boys, two girls, and they were all growing up together in a comfortable five-bedroom home on the east side of Belleville, Ontario. Tyrone, his brother, and sisters had the run of a big backyard and there were lots of kids to play with in the neighborhood. During the summer months, the family spent most of their time at their cottage on Oak Lake, north of the city. From the outside looking in, it appeared that the little boy who'd had a precarious start in life had landed into an idyllic family setting, like the ones popular on TV at the time, such as the Brady Bunch or the Partridge family. But life inside the Khan's home on Leslie Street was anything but ideal. While Dr. Khan was a professional man who provided well for his family, he was also a workaholic who spent more time at the hospital with his patients than at home. As a result, the children were under the full-time care of Mrs. Khan, a former psychiatric nurse who was an emotionally unstable alcoholic. Mrs. Kahn also suffered from paranoid delusions, and the Belleville police would get frequent calls from her saying that someone was stalking her and wanted to harm her. But because of Dr. Kahn's position and standing within the community, the police would humor her and take down her complaints. Her illness became a widely known secret in the community but no one ever thought to question how her fragile mental state was affecting her children, especially her adopted son, Tyrone. Years later, people who knew the family described witnessing Mrs. Kahn being emotionally and verbally abusive to Tyrone. He was treated much differently than the other children and was punished more severely. Mrs. Kahn often mocked him for being different and for being adopted. He spent a great deal of time in his bedroom as a form of punishment, and eventually a lock was installed on the door to keep him in. When Tyrone was six years old, the Kahn family moved to a hundred-acre hobby farm ten miles north of the city. And while the rural property gave the children plenty of room to roam, It further isolated them from neighbors and anyone who could possibly keep an eye on Mrs. Kahn and her deteriorating mental health. As for Dr. Kahn, the well-respected psychiatrist, he seemed to ignore the emotional and psychological well-being of his own family and spent even more time away from his family once they moved to the country. As a result, things got even worse for Tyrone. 
and soon he was being blamed for the increasing instability within the Khan household. By the time he was eight, Tyrone had discovered a way of rebelling against the irrational authority of Mrs. Khan and the absence of Mr. Khan. He began stealing food out of the refrigerator at night. Caught in the act, another lock was installed on his bedroom door. But in what would prove to be a lifelong aversion to locked doors, young Tyrone quickly learned how to escape from his bedroom at night and relock the door behind him. By the time he was caught again, he had amassed an impressive secret stash of cookies and candy. This time, the cons installed an escape-proof chain lock, and Tyrone was once again locked away from the rest of the family. Left for hours at a time, without access to a toilet, Tyrone learned to improvise, and at one point even used the silo of his Fisher-Price farm set. In 1976, when he was nine years old, Tyrone was sent away to camp. He later recalled that that summer was one of the happiest times of his childhood, except for the fact that he didn't go home for nine weeks. While most kids stayed for a two- or three-week session, Tyrone had been booked in for the whole summer, and his parents never visited When Tyrone finally returned from camp, life on the Kahn family farm went from bad to worse. Mrs. Kahn accused him of stealing money and other items around the house that she would hide in his room. And that's not all Mrs. Kahn was hiding. She was hiding liquor bottles after she had consumed their contents and passed out on the living room couch. As Mrs. Kahn fell heavier into depression and alcoholism, tension in the home increased, and Tyrone's punishments for any perceived wrongdoing turned more bizarre. For stealing food, he would be forced to eat unpleasant mixtures like sugar and vinegar, or pudding and pepper. And he would have to stand in the corner for hours at a time, often on his tiptoes, with a sharp paring knife under his heels. When he was accused of stealing a ring and a necklace, the cons forced him to dig in the garden for weeks, convinced he had buried the jewelry somewhere on the property. The digging only stopped when Tyrone suffered a serious asthma attack and had to be rushed to the hospital. The ring and the necklace were found later in the house, but no one bothered to tell Tyrone until ten years later. In order to escape his unhappy home life, Tyrone turned to sports. He played soccer and joined the cross-country running team at his school. Running would become a lifelong passion, giving him a sense of freedom that he longed for. And books also became a source of freedom for the boy locked in his room for hours upon hours. He could escape into other worlds and fantasize about being any place except where he was. Tyrone was a sad child who felt that he didn't belong, and his methods of coping with a disintegrating family life would eventually turn into an obsession of trying to outrun and escape from his troubles. 
In 1978, when Tyrone was 11, his mother, Mrs. Kahn, attempted suicide by slashing her wrists. When she was eventually released from the hospital, the Kahn's decided that life on the farm was too much and they would return to Belleville. The two oldest kids were away at boarding school and Tyrone was hoping he would be sent as well. With his high IQ, he had already aced the entrance exams. But the cons had decided on a much different future for Tyrone. Tyrone wouldn't be going to summer camp that July or private school in September. The cons were sending him back to Children's Aid. For the third time in his young life, Tyrone was being abandoned by those closest to him. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. With little explanation, Tyrone was told he had to go and live in another home for a while. Maybe the whole summer. A caseworker from the Belleville Children's Aid picked him up and took him to a foster home across town. Living in a new home with ten other kids was a big adjustment, and after a few weeks, he became homesick. Life with the cons was difficult, but they were the only family he knew, and he wanted to go home. But when his foster parents registered him for school in September, he realized he might not be going home after all. 
the Khan's marriage was collapsing due to Mrs. Khan's increasingly erratic behavior and alcoholism. The family was falling apart, and they needed to blame someone. So Tyrone, the adopted kid, became the scapegoat. And while the Belleville Children's Aid caseworkers felt sorry for Tyrone, they were also aware that the Khan's household was not a safe place for him. As much as they encouraged family reunification, returning Tyrone to the Khan's was not necessarily in his best interest. Because of Dr. Khan's influence and standing in the community, the Picton Children's Aid had not done their due diligence before handing over a young boy to a dysfunctional family. They had never done any follow-up and not a single social worker had ever visited the Khan's home. Now, eight years later, a confused young man was paying the ultimate price for their negligence. So on December 27, 1978, two days after Christmas, Tyrone Khan was officially made a ward of the Crown again and would remain in foster care. The Khans had washed their hands of Tyrone, and he was never going back. There was no goodbye. Many years later, looking back on his childhood, Tyrone remembered that day as the saddest day of his life. For the next few years, Tyrone moved from foster home to foster home, never really feeling like he belonged or was wanted. He always carried the hope that the cons would return for him, but they never did. To cope with his uncertain reality, Tyrone turned to the one activity that gave him some feeling of control, stealing. At first it was small things like cigarettes and candy, but then he started to wander into unlocked homes and cars. He liked the thrill of it. But eventually, he would get caught and he would be moved to another foster home. Nobody wanted a thief. By the time he was a teenager, he knew the foster system and how to maneuver within it. For example, every foster home had a two-tier society. Any biological children of the foster parents were on top and the foster kids were on the bottom. Certain areas of the home would be off-limits to the foster kids, and they would often be excluded from family holidays. Tyrone knew he wasn't part of any family. They were just people paid to look after him. To deal with his increasing feelings of anger and rejection, Tyrone continued to steal. And by the time he was 13, he had made his first court appearance for theft. He was now known to the local police and had been labeled a thief. A label that Tyrone Khan, a desperate lonely boy, planned to fully embrace. Nobody wanted him, and everyone was telling him he was bad. So, if he had to be bad, he might as well be good at it. In 1981, when Tyrone was 14... A doctor described him as, quote, a sad boy showing a degree of depression 
that is related to his unsettled life experience. The doctor added that Tyrone was lacking in positive self-esteem and did not dare to even think good things for himself or his future. He believed Tyrone's negative feelings manifested in destructive behavior such as stealing and running away. But regardless of what the doctor had observed, there was little help for Tyrone in the foster care system. He was damaged goods and no one was willing to take in an unruly teenager. Any semblance of a family life or a family home were gone, and his next place of residence would be an institution. The Country View Observation and Detention Home was a home for troubled youth located in the quaint town of Corbyville, just north of Belleville. And by the time Tyrone Kahn arrived there, he was facing five charges for theft and stolen property. But staff at the home believed Tyrone could change his behavior. He was smart, polite, and didn't cause any trouble. It was a possible turning point for the young man whose childhood had been so tumultuous. His counselors had worked with many other boys like Tyrone, and they knew that the trajectory he was currently on would not end well. But their efforts to turn the tides of Tyrone's future were in vain. Tyrone had had it with authority figures telling him what to do. So he ran. A few days later, he was caught and now had four more criminal charges against him, including theft of a car. This time, there would be no going back. A judge decided that Tyrone Kahn's persistent delinquencies were, quote, an affront to the community, and the Children's Aid Society seemed incapable of controlling him. The judge decided a more secure environment was needed to straighten out the 14-year-old boy and sentenced him to six months in the Brookside Training School in Kohlberg, a decision that would have a significant impact on the rest of his life. Brookside Training School was a provincially run reform school for boys and girls aged 8 to 16 that were deemed unmanageable or incorrigible by the courts. It was one of 13 schools across the province that was established to provide moral, physical, academic, and vocational education training, according to the 1965 Training School Act. While the idea was to provide support, correction, and vocational training, the reality of the schools was far more sinister, one of fear, intimidation, and brutality. Ontario training schools were prisons for kids, where many kids were physically and sexually abused. Youth were thrown into solitary confinement, were beaten by staff, and were forced into sexual acts. The schools were closed off from the communities they resided in, so no one could see what was going on inside. And if a resident attempted to report the abuse, it would only lead to further retaliation. The last training school was closed in 1984, 
And since then, the Ontario government has secretly settled hundreds of lawsuits alleging sexual, physical, and emotional abuse by teachers and staff. In 2018, a $600 million class action lawsuit was filed against the government on behalf of thousands of victims who were abused. But none of the awareness of what was actually happening in the training schools came in time to help Tyrone Kahn when he arrived at Brookside on June 9, 1981. When Tyrone walked through the gates of Brookside Training School, he quickly realized this was a very different place than any of the foster homes or group homes he had been in. He had to wear a uniform, and he would now be living in what was called a closed house, where the doors were locked 24 hours a day, like a maximum security unit in an actual prison. On the other side of the locked doors was a 20-foot-high chain-link fence surrounding the property. Tyrone had run away from every place that had ever tried to contain him, but he knew Brookside was going to be a challenge. His only hope was to abide by the rules and do his time until he could figure out a way to escape. And it didn't take him long. In fact, Tyrone escaped from Brookside at least seven times. He couldn't help himself. But each time he was caught, his sentence at the training school would be reset to day one, and he would be sent to the digger, a slang term used for solitary confinement. The digger was a small, airless, windowless room with no furniture. Tyrone would lay on the cold ceramic floor and dream about his next great escape. In his two years at Brookside, Tyrone spent a lot of time in the digger and never really learned to conform to the rules of the institution. Fifteen years later, he reflected on his time at Brookside and realized it was there that he decided to pursue a life of crime. He had found acceptance among the other boys like him, and illegal pursuits earned respect in their world. He decided that he would steal what he needed to have a good life, but he drew the line at hurting people. That was something he would never do. In his own words, Tyrone once wrote, I wasn't blaming anyone for my behavior or attempting to avoid responsibility for my own actions. I had certainly left authorities in charge of me with few options, but in retrospect, Sending me to Brookside was a mistake, and it shaped my life in a way that was to condemn me to many more years of imprisonment. When Tyrone turned 16 in 1983, he was no longer eligible to stay at Brookside, so he was sent to Hope Manor Group Home in the Kitchener-Waterloo area. It was a large red-brick farmhouse surrounded by fresh-cut farmer's fields. But despite its bucolic surroundings, Tyrone quickly learned it was just another secure custody facility for youth, and he didn't plan on staying long. 24 hours later, 
he was gone. Finally, the Children's Aid Society gave up and terminated his crown wardship. At 16 and a half, he was officially on his own. No more locked doors or chain-link fences holding him in. But there was only one problem. He had nowhere to go. So Tyrone turned to the only family he had ever known, the Cons. Five years after they had returned him to the care of the children's aid, Tyrone still held out some faint hope that the Cons would welcome him back. Tyrone took a bus to Belleville and called Dr. Kahn. The two met, and then Dr. Kahn dropped Tyrone off at a budget motel and handed him $60. There would be no reconciliation and no further support. At 16, his family and the system had written him off. Tyrone was truly alone and ill-prepared for life. He had already spent half of his life in institutions. His destiny was pretty much written. Six months later, on March 12, 1984, Tyrone Kahn walked into a bank with a gun. Anita Dixon had worked as a teller at the Central Guarantee Trust Company in Belleville for several years and enjoyed her job. It was a small branch office, and having grown up in the city, she knew most of her customers. But on the morning of March 12, 1984, when a teenage boy was standing in front of her, she didn't recognize him. Maybe his parents were clients, thought Anita. But then he handed her a note. It said he had a gun and he wanted money. Anita couldn't believe what she was reading. Was this kid seriously robbing the bank? Bank robberies didn't happen in Belleville. There hadn't been one in over 10 years. But Anita had recently attended a workshop on how to respond to a robbery and was taught to assume they were always armed. She didn't see a weapon on the kid, but later learned his accomplice keeping a lookout at the door was armed with a sawed-off 22 caliber rifle. Anita handed over the cash in her drawer, and the kid took off. She watched as the two teenagers jumped in a cab and fled. She still couldn't believe that a gangly teenager who looked somewhere between the age of 15 and 17 had just robbed the bank. Anita would be even more shocked when she discovered who it was. The Belleville police were surprised when they got a call from the trust company saying that they had just been robbed. But it didn't take long for them to track down their number one suspects. Two teenagers matching the description of the robbers were picked up at the Belleville train station a couple of hours after the holdup. They still had the money on them and gave up without a fight. Two months later, Tyrone Kahn pleaded guilty to armed robbery. He was now 17 and an adult in the eyes of the court. There would be no more youth facilities. 
But given his age, the judge did him a favor and sentenced him to 23 months in prison. Because it was less than two years, Tyrone could serve his sentence in a provincial facility instead of a federal penitentiary. Tyrone's next stop was the Quinty Regional Detention Center in Napanee, Ontario. But, like every other place that had tried to contain Tyrone Khan, he had no intentions of staying. But, this time he felt different. Something had changed in him after robbing the bank. He wasn't a kid anymore, and any fantasies he once had about a romantic life of crime were gone. But what else did he have? No family, no friends, and no real future. He had run from everything and everyone to escape his feelings, but now it felt like his demons had finally caught up to him. This time, he decided, his escape would be more permanent and final. Suicide was his ticket out. On the next episode of Escape from Kingston Penitentiary, The Life and Death of Tyrone Khan. Fifteen years. That was the time limit Marion Wood, now Marion Chamberlain, had given herself before she would start searching for her son Ernie, the little three-and-a-half-year-old boy she had lost. She set a date. January 18th, 1985, his 18th birthday. He would be an adult then, and she hoped to explain what had happened so many years ago when she herself was just a 16-year-old mother. Marion knew nothing about her son's whereabouts, except that he had been adopted by a professional couple. She often dreamed of him having an ideal, perfect childhood the kind that she hadn't been able to provide for him. But when Marion eventually finds her son, she quickly discovers that all those experts, the social workers, the psychologists, and her own parents who said she couldn't care for her own child were wrong. And her little boy's life had been a sad, tragic story of dysfunction and neglect. And now, he was an inmate in a federal penitentiary. Escape from Kingston Penitentiary the Life and Death of Tyrone Khan is written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And ch- Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening.